from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we do come to you this morning with gratitude in our hearts for what you have done for us in Jesus, uniting us to him and resurrecting our souls, giving us life in him. We ask your blessing on us this morning as we come to sit under your word. We ask that you would be merciful to us. Open our eyes to see wonderful things in this portion of your gospel. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now we're continuing our series in Ephesians. Now throughout the summer so far, we've been contemplating the blessings that are ours in Jesus. We've seen that God is renewing you, that he's renewing the entire world by his grace. We've seen that he chose you from the foundations of the world, that he saved you that he resurrected your dead soul. And by joining you to Jesus, he's also joined you to one another. And he's doing this. He's doing all of this work of renewal and transformation through his son, Jesus. So today we come to the conclusion of the first three chapters, a long, robust theological declaration. This is a turning point. It's a turning point in Paul's argument in the book of Ephesians, he's going to move from these worldwide blessings of salvation, of resurrection, new life, transformation, to the nitty-gritty details of how that transformation and renewal takes place in our everyday lives. He's going to move to those realities, to how that plays out on the ground. But in order to make this transition, in order to pivot his argument, he prays for God to solve a problem for the Ephesians. I'll tell you about another problem. When Cassie and I were first married, uh, we were on our best behavior. Like we're, we were like uh, every other newlywed. We were polite and kind and, uh, for about the first four months. And you know, I would put the toothpaste away Right, where, where it belonged, in the drawer. I did the dishes on a regular basis. Uh, I took out the trash in a timely manner. She did the laundry, folded the, my shirts the way my OCD self likes, very crisp. Uh, she rarely criticized me about anything. Um, there was nothing to criticize anyways, let's be honest. Then about two or three months in, we, were, we grew more comfortable, grew more comfortable with each other, uh, let our guards down a little bit, and 
we began to grow more and more frustrated. Uh, and by about month four, I remember sitting across the dinner table from her thinking, who is this alien? And what has she done with my wife? And I know for a fact, she was thinking, who is this barbarian who can't even put the toothpaste away in its proper location? And what has this barbarian done with my husband? What we were experiencing was the disenchantment that's natural in those first few months of marriage, that first year. We had, ex we had expectations that weren't being met. We grew in disenchanted with the idea of living with another human being. And of course, y'all, we all go through these moments. It's not just for married folks. We all go through seasons of disenchantment when uh, what we want to be true is not matching up with reality. Now, this is also true of the Christian life. We hear of the blessings of God in, in Jesus Christ, the transformation, the, the spiritual renewal, the resurrection of Ephesians 1 through 3. And then we have to look out into the world. We have to look into ourselves. We have to look ourselves in the mirror and see the sin, suffering, and sorrow of our lives and a world gone mad. We have to recognize the pain and the heartache. We hear the reports of failed ministers. We experience the failures of the church to be all that God has called her to be. We also experience our own failures. And we have to confess that we don't have the resources necessary in ourselves to confront the demons of disenchantment. We just don't have it. We can try and try and try, and we do not have the resources necessary. So Paul's answer to this concern is peculiar. He prays. It's, uh, he prays and calls on the inexhaustible resources of a good and powerful father. He begins on his knees, indicating the urgency of this need. And then he addresses God as father. This is peculiar for the first century Christian and the first century Jew. In other epistles, he says, we give thanks to God for you, uh, or, or we never cease to praise you. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. He begins his prayers in that way, but here he begins with Father. And as Father, he is both loving and powerful. He is in charge, but he is deep compassion for you and for me. He's the one who names every family in heaven and on earth, meaning he's the source. He's the sustainer of all things in heaven and on earth. He literally spoke it into existence. But he is also your father. And Paul begins on his knees before his father. And it's to this loving and powerful father that, call, that Paul calls on to provide out of the resources of the riches of his glory. Well, we've sim seen similar phrases before, the riches of his glorious inheritance in chapter 1, the riches of his grace in chapter 2, the riches of Christ earlier in chapter 3. We looked at that last week. This is, 
simply means that God has inexhaustible resources at his disposal. Inexhaustible, unmatched resources for you and for me. And God, as your father, provides the spiritual resources necessary for renewal. He provides the resources for spiritual life that we see in chapters 1, 2, and 3, but also for spiritual living in chapters 4, 5, and 6. That's where he's going to turn in just a moment. Walk in a manner worthy of the gospel of your calling. But first, we need those resources in order to do so. So what are those resources? We're going to see that God provides three things in Ephesians 3. First, spiritual strength. Second, spiritual knowledge. And then third, spiritual maturity. First, he prays for spiritual strength. Look at the end of verse 16. That he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Paul begins by asking for inner strength by the Spirit. He doesn't begin by looking at external circumstances. He doesn't begin uh, or start off with, well, if only you had a different spouse, or if only you had a different job, or if only you had a different home or car or lived in a different city, then you would have the resources necessary. No, no. He asks the Spirit of God to move in such a way that he strengthens you in your inner being. One commentator said it this way, that the inner man is the center of one's personality. The thoughts, will, emotions, and whatever else lies at the center of our being. So the cure for your disenchantment, the power for spiritual renewal is not a change of situation but a change of heart, an empowerment in the inner being. And it's by this inner strengthening that the indwelling Christ becomes a deeper reality. He says that so that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. Now, that's a peculiar thing because Christ has already made his dwelling in us, right? We've already, our hearts have already become Christ's home, This is a prayer that that dwelling would be actualized, that it would be empowered by the work of the Spirit so that you have a deep experience of spiritual strengthening, the indwelling of Christ to transform your life. C.S. Lewis uh, gives a really helpful illustration in Mere Christianity. He says, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right, stopping the leaks in the roof, and so on. You know that those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and doesn't seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he's building quite a different house from the one you thought of, throwing out a new wing here, putting up an extra floor, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were going to be made into a decent little cottage. But he's building a palace. 
He intends to come and live in it himself. And friends, this is, that's, that's Paul's prayer. That's his prayer for you. That's his prayer for the Ephesians. That Christ would take up residence in you and empower you to accomplish the tasks he's laid out in chapters 4, 5, and 6 of Ephesians. And so our task is to simply, humbly rely on the inner strengthening of God's spirit. To be strengthened, it's to stop focusing all of our attention on the externals and to fixing all of our situations. But it's to be sensitive to the moving of God's spirit in our inner being because it's there that he strengthens you. And then secondly, he prays for spiritual knowledge. Let's continue where we left off in verse 17. He says that according to the riches of his glory, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. In this second request, He begins by asking that they would be rooted in love, that the love of Christ would be the soil, the garden out of which the entirety of their life would spring. And that then, having been rooted in the love of Jesus, that they would be able to understand the extent to which God loves them, that they would understand the length, that they would understand the breadth, that they would understand the height and the depth of Christ's love for them. But this understanding is more than intellectual comprehension. It's more than just an intellectual capacity to understand, know that God loves us. This type of knowledge that Paul speaks of, that he prays for, for the Ephesians, it's personal. It's intimate familiarity with the love of God in Christ Jesus. I'll tell you what I mean by intimate familiarity. Uh, On Sunday afternoons, uh, we put all three of our children down for a nap. Uh, We call this family nap time. Uh, It's it's desperate need in our house, uh, especially on Sundays. Now, whether they actually take a nap or if they just sit in their bed quietly, not moving or speaking, I don't care. As long as we get some alone time and the children are in their, their rooms not speaking, I don't care. It's up, to, it's up to them. But our son Jack, our four-year-old boy, often falls asleep because Sunday afternoons are his time to catch up on sleep. Now, he doesn't nap during the week, and so Sundays are his time to rest. And if the boy doesn't have rest, it's a catastrophe. So when Jack wakes up from his naps on Sunday afternoon, he's a little groggy, and he's usually fairly sweaty because he's like his daddy. He sleeps really hard and sweats a lot. But he doesn't just stand there like a zombie. You know, he doesn't just walk out of his room and stand there. No, he opens his door, usually has his blue puppy in hand, and sometimes is sucking his thumb, almost always sucking his thumb. I've been trying to get him to stop doing that. But he, he walks out, and if I'm sitting on the couch, he comes over to me, and without asking any permission, the boy just climbs up into my lap, and he snuggles. 
And I'm telling you guys, like, I live on those snuggles for like months. Because he's the best snuggler in the world. Quite literally, the best snuggler in the world. If you need snuggles, ask Jack. But do you think he ponders to himself, does my dad love me enough to let me sit in his lap? Of course not. Of course the boy doesn't wonder, does my daddy love me enough to let me sit in his lap? He's personally familiar with me. He knows that I love him because he's experienced that love. I'm familiar. My love is familiar to him. And that's Paul's prayer for the Ephesians. It's one of the resources that God gives you to fight the demons of disenchantment and to empower your renewal is a personal familiarity with his love, spiritual knowledge. He gives you a taste of his love when you see Christ hanging on the cross as the ultimate act of love. Paul says in Romans 5, one will scarcely die for a righteous person, right? It's rare that someone would die for a righteous person, but maybe they would. But God demonstrates his love in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's not because you are good or delightful that he loves you. It's precisely because you were his enemy and he wanted to make you part of his family that he chose to love you. He wanted to make you his own. And so he chose to hang on a cross until the life was drained out of him. And then he strolled into death for you. He walked into it, despising its shame, and he hung there because he loves you. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? His love is amazing, and we can never plumb its depths. We can't comprehend its magnitude, but he gives us a small taste in the death of his son, Jesus. And so in those moments, when you look out at the chaos of the world, or you peer into your own soul and see your failures, take a moment to also look at the cross and see there the God who spoke the entire creation into existence, who also hung there until he could breathe no more. And he did it for you. He did it because he loves you. He gives you spiritual strength and the spiritual knowledge of his love to combat the demons of disenchantment. Then lastly, he prays for spiritual maturity. Let's look at the end of verse 19. He says that according to the riches of his glory, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. This is an unusual phrase to us. We've heard something similar before. He says in Ephesians 1.23 that the church is the fullness of him who fills all in all. That doesn't answer our conundrum. What does this fullness mean? But he'll also say in chapter 4, verse 13, it's a little bit more helpful. He says there, until we attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. 
These are three phrases to describe the same concept. Three phrases to describe the future maturity of God's people in glory when we become fully Christ-like and we meet the end to which we were created to fully reflect Christ Jesus into this world. But Paul's prayer is that, that that future maturity would be experienced in the present, that you would receive power now to experience the future life of spiritual maturity, albeit imperfectly. He wants you to experience the life of perfection imperfectly. Now, I've observed this trend over the last uh, 10 years or so in, in folks that are in their 20s and early 30s. From what I understand about uh, real estate history, uh, which is very little, uh, but I understand a little bit, the common trend for about, uh, about 30 or 40 years ago was to purchase a small starter home, right? Maybe uh, 1,200 to 1,600 square feet. Maybe you have two bathrooms if you're lucky. Uh, Jacksonville, probably not. Um, just enough room for you and your spouse to begin to build your home, to begin to build your family. And then 10 to 15 years down the line when you have a family and the kids are older and they need more space, when you've built up equity into, into your home, you upgrade. You upgrade into a larger home, perhaps two to 3,000 square feet, depending on your desire and your income. But more and more, the trend that I've seen, uh, the trend that I've noticed is folks in their 20s and early 30s are looking to upgrade they're looking to purchase the upgrade first rather than to start in the starter home. Now, what I believe this reveals is that each of us desires the blessings of the future to become a present experience. We don't want to wait. We don't want to wait for the blessings. We want them now. And that's not a critique of homeownership at all. But that's Paul's prayer for you that you would get a small taste, just a little taste of that future life of God's people in glory when we are filled with all the fullness of God. And of course, of course it's imperfect in this life. But once you get a taste, once you get a taste of that glory, when that's your hope, you want more. It's like walking through the house of your dreams you see yourself living in it. You want it. God provides you with that resource. Spiritual maturity, the spiritual maturity of the future life coming into the present reality. And he's doing this through the work of his spirit out of the riches of his glory, the inexhaustible resources of a good and loving father. He provides these resources of spiritual strength, spiritual knowledge, and, uh, and, and spiritual maturity. Now I'll close with where Paul closes in verses 20 and 21. He says, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever.
all these resources of spiritual strength, knowledge, and maturity are not simply meant to help you overcome disenchantment. It's not simply to defeat the frustrations of this world. They're given out of the riches of God's glory for the purposes laid out here in verses 20 and 21, that you would live a doxological life, that your life, empowered by the resources of God, would be a life glorifying God and enjoying him forever. That's the goal, that your whole life would be lived for the praise of God's glorious grace to him who is able to do far more than we ask or imagine. These resources are designed to fuel praise and adoration, to fuel wonder and awe at a God who would do such a thing for us mere humans. So he is able. He is able out of the riches of his glory to provide you with more resources than you could ever ask or you could ever imagine. So let's pray for those resources now. Almighty God, we do give you thanks that you are a gracious and generous, loving Father. That you have given out of the storehouses of your glory the resources necessary for us to walk into your ways, for us to delight in your truth. And Father, I pray that you would give us those resources even now. Strengthen us in our inner being. Help us comprehend the incomprehensible love that you have for us in Jesus. And let us get a good taste of that future life in glory. We ask in Jesus' name.